Underground cybercrime forums are where many criminals and likely also nation-state actors buy and sell attack tools as well as stolen information, such as credit card numbers. Hi, I'm Matthew Schwartz, Executive Editor for Information Security Media Group, and I'm speaking with Tom Kellerman, Vice President of Cybersecurity at Trend Micro. Tom, I know this is a topic that you've been tracking for a long time. How have these underground forums been evolving as of late? The underground itself has become professionalized to a level that would rival the way multinational corporations would operate with subsidiaries overseas. What you're seeing is not only the distribution of a myriad of new services, but you're seeing greater operational security paid to the forums themselves, more advanced attack capabilities that have morphed into the Web 3.0 environment, as well as lower prices, which allow for more criminals who are not cyber-capable to get in the game. With over 20,000 members of these 78 forums, you need to appreciate that not all of them are technical sophisticants. What are some of the most interesting capabilities that you're seeing on these underground forums now? The three most interesting that I found were log processing services, for example, which is essentially data mining of all of the terabytes of data that's already been stolen or that is being currently siphoned out of compromised corporate and government networks. These folks are actually now looking through these logs for you for a service to process any interesting information that you may desire from them. Another capability that's directly relevant to the ubiquity of websites and mobile apps is that they are distributing cell scripts, the capacity to identify not only a compromised web server, which there are many, as you know, but then leveraging attacks through them, not only to the backend databases, but against their constituency, otherwise known as watering hole attacks. And are we seeing more watering hole attacks these days, do you think? Is it becoming more common and easy to do? A dramatic increase. Our report's coming out, and I think that we're going to see close to 100% increase in watering hole attacks. And that's due to the ubiquity of the use of exploit kits, the sophistication of exploit kits, whether they be like Angler, Nuclear, Sweet Orange that are widely used. You also have to understand that these exploit kits are not just used to distribute spear phishing emails. They're used to actually create these watering holes as they exist today. One other interesting service that I found (laughs) quite elegant, and it speaks to the amount of money and the amount of capital and the wealth that these guilds of thieves maintain, is the money laundering with corporate accounts. What a fantastic service. So you're a drug kingpin in Colombia. You need to launder $20 million today. You can actually hire one of these miscreants to launder that money for you for a fee of about $50,000. What they do is they'll compromise some large multinational corporation's corporate account, and overnight that account will wire out $20 million. Isn't that elegant? Because corporate bank accounts are so insecure as they relate to the connection between the corporation and the financial institution that is particularly only governed by the security of SSL and maybe multi-factor authentication, if not two-factor authentication, these folks are leveraging those accounts overnight. So imagine this then. You have the, for example, in the U.S., you would have FinCEN, the Financial Intelligence Unit of the Treasury, knocking on your corporate door the next day saying, red flag, you laundered $20 million last night, and the corporation's general counsel going, excuse me, that doesn't make any sense, and then they show them the records. (laughs) It's just mind-boggling. So explain to me how that would work. Say one is a drug kingpin with $20 million, and you hire this service for $50,000. Do they put the money in first and then route it out so that it can't be traced? Or how does that work exactly? It's $50,000 plus a percentage of the money that's there. In some cases, it's as high as 50%. But let's just say you're another hacker or a drug kingpin at that point. You've agreed to terms. 
essentially you put the money into your own account or compromised account. They leverage these compromised corporate accounts to distribute the funds. So initially, yeah, the funds are being leveraged into the initial corporate account and then being sent to some other account in a country that is not cooperative with U.S. law enforcement or financial action task force against money laundering. And thus, basically, the complicit actor is viewed to be the initial corporation whose merely their account was hacked the night before but was used to transfer the funds. It's elegant. It is very elegant. So there's a small window there where the hacked business could be $20 million richer if they spotted the attack in progress. Yep. I would suspect that does not happen very frequently. It doesn't happen because they target the specific corporate accounts of corporations whose accounting department is asleep <laughs> during those hours of the day. And so because of time zone and chasing the fund, essentially, yeah, the corporation is not going to red flag the fact that they earned $20 more million last night and then it went away. They'll just see it as some sort of glitch in the banking system. That is fascinating. Me personally, I really like the phishing and spam native language as a service offering that you detailed in the report. Since so many spams and phishing emails are so poorly spelled, it seems like there's a natural hole in the market, if you will. There is. And, you know, this speaks to the multidisciplinary approach of these forms. It speaks to the distribution and the use of various services. So now, you know, you're a Spanish teacher in high school who doesn't currently have a job anymore because there's Google translation apps, she just found herself a new job. Her new job is to operate one of these forms as essentially one of these translators. It's fantastic. And when you couple that with the most troubling reality of the report is that the untouchables, the folks that run those 78 forums, the true developers of these cyber weapons and cyber crime kits, these folks are now acting in a patriotic fashion against the Western governments who have been very damning of the regime vis-a-vis -vis their influence and their activities in Ukraine and Crimea. And these folks are now basically, they're being called upon through back channels to be patriotic. Much like you see in the Ukraine, you see the use of patriotic citizens who want to fight for the rights of the, the Russian minority. You're seeing the same construct occurring in cyber. And this has been quite extensive with the attacks not only against the Ukrainian government, but the attacks against NATO in the Operation Pondstorm that we identified last spring as being a significant campaign of retribution in a cyber context against NATO and our allies vis-a-vis -vis the geopolitical tension. And I think that's fascinating to me because it goes back to the initial mantra of the use of proxies. It's always been a key staple of diplomacy and or soft power of the Soviet Union, obviously, before Glasnost. And so you're not meaning technical proxies, but purely a proxy as in some other party working on your behalf, but they can't be directly connected to you. Yes. The original definition of proxy that's been overly used in a technical sense for the last 15 years. It's intriguing to me because it speaks to the law of the land. The law of the land east of the Rhine has always been you can hack so long as you don't hack anything in your sovereign disabilities or anything that is essentially associated with anyone associated with the former Soviet bloc. Two, if you find anything interesting, as in when you conduct your log processing, that would be useful to your ethnic community, believe it that way, essentially you can share it and you should share it. And then lastly, when called upon to be patriotic with your cyber skills, as evidenced in Estonia, as evidenced in Georgia with those major hack campaigns, you will do so. And that is what's occurring now. And in exchange for that, you maintain your status as an untouchable. And that's what's happening. And there's evidence of that over the last year, and that's troubling.
very troubling. It's like the three rules of Fight Club, only it's the three rules of Russian cybercrime. Yeah, you know, the reason why the U.S., and there's a lot of reasons why the U.S. is losing the war against cybercrime, it's not the great efforts of U.S. law enforcement, because they're really trying to do their very best with limited resources. It's the fact that these other countries truly have an industrial policy. And with that industrial policy, they also view their best hackers and the greatest hacker forms as national assets. And they allow them to exist and thrive so long as those forums and those actors act in a patriotic fashion and turn their guns outside of those sovereign borders. And that's highly problematic. And this concept of a protection racket state and the concept of hacker havens is really growing. And if you look at the comparisons of the Chinese, Japanese, Brazilian, U.S., Russian undergrounds, those are the most significant ones, mind you. This one is so far advanced in terms of their organizational structure, their sophistication, the capability set of these true craftsmen who are developing the ultimate cyber weaponry. And then lastly, the capacity to control the marketplace itself. I mean, if you even look at the Brazilian underground market, that originally began as almost a partnership, a strategic business partnership with the Russian underground market. And now the Brazilian market has developed their own capabilities and service. But it's just amazing that they're basically mirroring Western business models, mirroring Western technology, and using the dark side of globalization to their benefit. It's almost a free market. If you can build a great product, you're allowed to sell it to anybody. Exactly. I would agree. One other question I had for you, you know, we were talking about proxies in the tactical sense. And one of the things that I found interesting in the report was what appears to be the increasing availability and lower cost of bulletproof hosting services. When we speak about where the rubber hits the road in cybercrime, cybercrime capabilities, we oftentimes overlook the ecosystem that exists, the neighborhoods in the deep web that facilitate the criminality, the weapons development, the trade in illicit goods and the payment for those illicit goods. Metaphorically, if you were to view what a hacker is dependent upon, they're dependent upon their reputation, their handle, which is like the seat of a bar stool. And underneath the seat of that bar stool are three legs. One leg is the hacking and hacking capabilities that we constantly talk about. The second leg is the anonymous payment systems that facilitate the transfer of value or capital for the provision of services or capabilities or goods. And the third leg is the bulletproof host, wherein those forums that we spoke of and those marketplaces that exist that allow for these ephemeral relationships and business transactions to occur are protected and insulated from law enforcement, from government communities, and provide them with this alternative universe, per se, of criminality. These bulletproof hosts are essentially the hideouts for the cyber criminals of the world. Cyber criminals of the world where conservative estimates have stated that this is approximately a half a trillion dollar a year business. And that doesn't even account for the value of intellectual property that is stolen. And so when we look at this and we look at dealing with the problem of cybersecurity, cybersecurity firms and cognizant cybersecurity individuals will never be able to civilize cyberspace without recognizing and appreciating that something must be done about these hacker havens, which essentially are these bulletproof hosts. So prices have gone down. Bulletproof hosts have become more resilient. They have a better operational security mantra and essentially implementation within these hosts now. They're using things outside of TOR. They're using things like I2P. They're leveraging language-specific forms. They are doing counterintelligence and offset vis-a-vis polluting ecosystems. So if you come in there with anything other than a virtual machine, you're just going to get popped. It's quite intricate. And the greatest neighborhood of bulletproof hosts that are available out there is really in the former Soviet bloc. But there are growing neighborhoods in the Middle East, 
in Southeast Asia and in Brazil. Think of it this way. They're like favelas. Brazilian slums. Exactly. And where it's a dog-eat-dog world. And in these Brazilian slums, who runs the slums? The slums are run by organized crime, as they should be, because those syndicates take greater care of the population than the government does. And that is exactly what occurs in the Bulletproof hosting regime. Now, the only way you get involved in these communities is you have to prove that you're one of them. You can't be two things. You can't be a ripper, someone who does shady deals, who doesn't deliver on a service or on a payment, and you can't be a law enforcement officer. And they try to vet you as best as possible to ascertain that you need a Bulletproof hosting sites must be a natural target for law enforcement agencies. For example, the FBI potentially trying to hack into or take down Russian bulletproof services. But it seems like they're at least somewhat resilient to that. They're resilient to takedowns and sinkholing for a lot of technical reasons, because they're mirrored, because they've got great resiliency and business continuity capabilities. But most importantly, it's because most of these bulletproof hosts that are truly nefarious are either hosted on virtual machines and virtual hosts of compromised cloud environments, and people really don't know where they are because they're constantly in motion. Or the hardware and the service themselves are located in countries that have not ratified the International Convention Against Cybercrime, the Budapest Convention. Or they're located in countries that have ratified the Budapest Convention, but these countries also see these communities as national assets, so they turn a blind eye to the activity. And note, only three out of five countries statistically have actually ratified that convention. That's a lot of blank spots on the world map. It is, and it's been done purposely so. The developing world also sees hacking, and this is a true phenomenon. I say this being a professor of international affairs and someone who's intimately involved with Interpol, that in many countries in the developing world, just like you see rampant corruption, and all you have to do is look at something called the Transparency Perception Index to look at the levels of the corruption, those most corrupt countries in the world see hacking as an economic benefit, as a way of not only transferring wealth in a Robin Hood fashion to their country, but also a way of leapfrogging the gaps in advancement in their own economies, knowing full well that there's a tremendous amount of money spent on research and development and a tremendous amount of money that's spent on infrastructure. And you can skip both of those steps of the development life cycle of a nation state by essentially stealing ideas and moving directly to the internet and wireless and acting in a Robin Hood fashion, and that occurs. And because there are no international norms that have been established vis-a-vis what you do, not only from country to country on cyber war, but what do you do when significant hacking activity is emanating out of your country, but it isn't affecting your country, at which point can a foreign nation actually use technology or kinetic force to stop that activity? None of those international norms have ever been established, truly. People would say that you look at international law and you look at the Budapest Convention for guidance, but the reality is since most of the world hasn't signed it yet, it doesn't matter, right? Right, you can't hold them to it. And even if they did sign it, are you really going to send Navy SEALs in to take out the hackers and God knows what countries? No, you're not. On that geopolitical note, Tom, thank you very much for your insights into the cybercrime underground. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz. Thank you for joining us.